All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Surviving Hollywood Podcast. I'm Austin. Hey, welcome back, Austin. I'm Aaron. <laughs> uh, hey, Austin, Aaron. I'm Johnny. All right. Guys, we just had a great episode. Director, network TV, movie director, Chris Grismer. What'd you guys think? I really liked this guy's energy. So you knew him from that show you worked on with him, Deputy. This is the first time I met him. And he seems really like, seems like he'd be a solid director to work with on set. You can tell he's just smart with it, chill. I always, I thought he was, he's kind of got the energy, like a dad type energy, meaning cool, calm and collected, dude knows his stuff. Hey, but you guys, you guys watch the episode and let me know. But yeah, uh, I met him on Deputy, uh, great experience. Now Deputy on Fox didn't get picked up for season two, was not because of the directing, I'll tell you that. But uh, Chris walks us through what it's like to direct network TV shows, how to get jobs as a director on network TV shows. Yeah, he's also, a totally, totally cool dude. Um, definitely like, you know, a film guy. He said he grew up, in, you know, working in a video store in Canada. Um, and that's how he got into movies and stuff. So I always love to hear that kind of thing. And uh, he talks a little bit about how he went to film school, was making shorts, ended up making a feature that got into Toronto Film Festival. And that's kind of when his career sort of took off. Um, so I thought that was really cool um, for him to kind of share that. And uh, for all your directors out there, it's a, it's a great way to show you that there are many avenues to getting to TV. And um, also he has a lot of producing and executive producing experience. So we talked to him about that. He had some insightful stories. And question for you, Johnny, he talked about shadowing if you want to become a director and you're trying to get into directing. Well, you... I was planning on emailing him after this podcast. <laughs> That's great, dude. Hopefully he watches. Or, you know, he doesn't respond. Hey, he said that too. We talked about that also. Hey, for me, uh, but exactly. What, what, what are you going to say, Johnny? Give us the little... Uh, hey, Chris. Uh, I don't know if you remember me. We just spoke three minutes ago on the podcast. Wondering if there's any way I can come follow you, man. Stalk you? No, that's too much. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll workshop it. We'll work but Aaron, you, you want to take us in? All right, guys. Uh, enjoy the episode with Chris. He's the man. Um, follow him on his Instagram. Um, and look forward to the second half of the episode when he starts getting into some of the movies that he just recently watched and that inspires him. And surprisingly, it was the guest we had on just in the past week, Anna Hutchison, like the cabin in the woods. And let's do it. So Chris, you listen to many podcasts? Um, I do, I listen to, I mean, my go-to podcasts are like the true crime ones and you know, uh, Radio Lab and the Moth, Radio Lab, stuff like that. I like uh, uh, what's the one? Spooked a lot too. That's true crime. No, Spooked is like it's terrifying. Like it's literally just it's a New York podcast, and it, they just interview people and they tell things, creepy things that have happened to them for real, and it's absolutely true stories. The stories told by the people that it happened to, and it's literally my son and I listen to it, and then he sleeps with the lights on. <laughs> is there is there any like certain one that like really stuck out to you? Like there's a one, one about this. There's one about this uh, 
this kid, he's um, uh, Mexican American. He his family would get back to Mexico every summer to his to his dad's sort of birthplace in the middle of this town, and they would have this huge festival that took over the whole town, and the kids were down there playing, and uh, a truck lost control of its brakes, and drove into like it came down the hill, smashed into a clown car that was part of it. What? One of the clowns with a broken neck landed sort of in front of him and his brother and sister. And they thought it was part of the act. So they were laughing at the clown as it was dying. Oh my God. Appeared <laughs> to them that night, like at the, at the house, he was sitting in the kitchen trying to get into their room and they all swear it. Like the whole family is like this happened to us. That's crazy. That, that, I mean, yeah, you, that would be like the most random thing, like a clown car. That's, yeah. that's so weird. If that happened on a TV show, I would not believe it. No, I don't. <laughs> where do you uh, where do you fall on the Joe Rogan Mark Marin scale? Chris? I like Mark Marin. Joe Rogan is like, what did somebody say recently? It's the it's the idea that just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you should express it. You know, or I don't <laughs> just I, I'm not a big fan of his. Uh, I feel like this is just this side of Fox News sometimes. I like <laughs> if, if he has a good guest, it, like those Elon Musk yeah. episodes. I will watch those oh, all yeah. the time. But uh, I'm, a bi- I'm a big fan. I don't know. I, I think he's progressive. Like, I don't think he's that close to Fox News. Sometimes. I don't know. Uh, Elon Musk, though, is Lex Luthor for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. Yeah, I, li- I like Marin. I, I, just, I, I just, I don't know if you listened to the one we had with Seinfeld recently. No. But it was interesting because he, he did like a Zoom call because, you know, obviously they kept me up. And it felt like the whole time, like, Seinfeld didn't want to be there. I think he probably he, didn't want to be there. Yeah, it was just weird. He's like, I've been trying to get this guy for years. Last time I asked him to do my podcast, he was like, why? Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's just so funny. Well, that's the fun that's part like, about Seinfeld interviews. They're always like biting. Like Seinfeld's always like yeah. kind of mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah that comedians and cars thing. He's pretty mean in that too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chris, let's let's cut the shit. Okay. Are birds are birds <laughs> real or are birds not real? Uh, have you ever seen a baby bird? I think so. They're, ro- they're robots. They're drones. No, there's this guy who doesn't, that's what I forgot I was reading. There's a guy who does, uh, has a website. It's sort of about conspiracy theories and it's sort of a deconstruction of conspiracy theories. So his whole thing is birds aren't real. And I I saw a poster for it in uh, Silver Lake once. And he's like, birds aren't real. Come and join this meeting or whatever. And I went to the website. (laughs) You went to a meeting. I mean, I've heard that conspiracy theory. So it's like getting kind of mainstream now. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a great, a great shirt to wear at a protest. You know what I mean? Just, just, just out there, just rallying. Just completely randomize the protest steps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, some, we usually just like to fade right in to sure. like the, the industry talk of this um, thing, yeah. but you, you've directed a ton of stuff, designated survivor, deputy, obviously we'll get into uh, like all the stuff or, or some of them, but I know you're originally from Canada. Mm-hmm. How'd you first get into directing? Uh, I, uh, I guess I, I was, it was photography first when I was a little kid and I just started, you know, taking pictures. Um, then I, I worked at a video store and that's in the like late eighties. And that's when I really wanted to, you know, start making horror movies and things like that. My friends and I would dream about that. So I applied to film school and I didn't get into the first one that I applied to. So I went to almost got a degree in philosophy. Um, and theology while I was trying to get in film school. Finally got into a film school and uh, 
went from there to do my master's in directing at uh, the Canadian Film Center, which is Norman Jewison runs. And they take like eight people a year and you just direct for six months and then they pick one person to make a feature. And um, I got the feature. So I made a feature through nice. them. And meanwhile, I was a crew member. I was a grip for a long time. And then I worked in camera and um, electric and everything. So I was, while I was directing my first feature, I was also on the weekends gripping on American features. Wow. When you, when you were working on that, or when they gave you that feature, like you wanted it essentially, yeah. was that fully funded by the school? And were you ever like at all feeling like, oh, this is kind of daunting. I've done shorts, but now a feature no, is a whole different game. It wasn't that, I mean, it was daunting in that it was fully funded to $330,000 Canadian. So it was, <laughs> you know, it was two days of shooting on an American movie or whatever, American TV series. But it was, um, it was daunting because I wrote and directed it and there were too, so many cooks and government agencies and everyone had an opinion and, you know, it was hard. It sold to HBO, um, Cinemax or something. And it, that's, it did the Toronto film festival, a bunch of film festival circuits. It served its purpose. And it got me uh, my first TV gig on queer as folk, really my first mm -hmm. American TV gig and Canadian, for some reason, the Canadian series, there was only a couple that wanted me to work that would allow me to work on them because Canada kind of has this, hierarchy of you know it's, it'll be your time at some point but right now it's not and you don't have enough experience to work on Degrassi or whatever is what I was told um so I so I uh, luckily for me I didn't have enough experience to work on Degrassi so instead I was working on a, I was directing American shows so uh, the obvious the obvious choice was then to move to LA uh, to continue directing American shows so I moved here and got my green card and now I'm on my way to getting my citizenship so nice nice what was it that uh, that film festival process for you like? I mean, Toronto Film Festival is pretty pretty well known. Um, are you were you like really happy with how the film turned out? Like, were you able to make a lot of connections to that film festival? I was able to make a lot of connections through it. Um, I wasn't that happy with how it turned. I mean, it was really it's really a bizarre film. It's called Clutch, and it you know it's in maybe in a discount bin in a in in, in a amoeba right now for. A <laughs> It was like very art house. It was like my, I was so happy that um, Filmmaker Magazine called it a Hal Hartley-esque ripoff with a lot of heart. And I was like, yes, they get it. You know, they called it Hal Hartley ripoff was like a big compliment to me. So, um, so that, uh, it, it served its purpose. And then, you know, I didn't, I kind of got into television. I saw that, you know, I had written another feature and it had Marcia Gay Harden, John Favreau, Macaulay Culkin, and uh, Sarah Pauly were all sort of loosely attached to it. And then um, that some of the funding fell apart. And in Canada, all the funding is tier-based. So if, if you lose some here, you'll lose a bunch here. And the thing, it just fell apart like a house of cards. And I didn't have any, uh, anything else. I was like, what, what, what do I do? So it was te television seemed like the logical choice. And did you have, when did you first get representation? Was that not till LA or did you have that in Canada? No, I got, I, got, I came down, I used to come down to LA a lot while I was living in Canada and just spent like a month here or so, just like writing and hanging out and taking meetings that never amounted to much. But, um, and uh, I got representation on one of those at Paradigm. Bill, well, I was at, Bill Douglas was at William Morris at the time. And so I met with him and uh, he took me on and then he moved over to Paradigm and I was the head of TV there. So I've kind of been with him since, since, you know, 15 years, 20 years almost. Mm. Wow. Was it, was it easy? Cause I feel like that's a huge sort of step that most people struggle with. Um, I don't know. It seemed easier for me cause I had, uh, I did direct a lot of music videos. 
So my, I think that, you know, TV directors in particular all kind of have the same resume and the same reel. And so I had a couple things. I had my photography because I'm like a photographer. I've been with gallery shows and stuff. And then I'm, I did a lot of music videos. And so I had two little other pieces that could be thrown out as style things. A lot of people with TV directors, like I know when I'm hiring television directors, I don't know what's their style. And I don't know what is the show's showrunner and directing producer style. So it's hard, it's hard to tell, hard to set yourself apart. So I was lucky that I had those two things. So he used those. He saw he could sell me, I think. You, you kind of mentioned something just a second ago uh, that you took a lot of a lot of meetings and it kind of nothing really happened. I, I had read an article that the Duplass brothers said they won't do any more general meetings anymore because they just was like a complete waste of time. Yeah. Did you find what, what would you kind of find at these meetings for that was the purpose essentially that hey we might work together but it doesn't happen or I can't remember his name but he was the head of Paramount. Part of my deal with doing the show doing my first feature with Paramount paid for some of it like. $50,000 and part of it was to go and have a general meeting with him and so I had a general meeting and it sort of captured what general meetings are like and he just told me stories of how he worked his way up from being uh, he was actually an usher in a Paramount theater and the Paramount theater in Toronto had like some actually the railing from his first theater that he worked at he had it installed there so that my whole general meeting was just hearing stories about and it was great it was really interesting but it was like right. it went absolutely nowhere i suppose right. if i was really good i've never been that great at selling in the room like just off the cuff like i have friends who can just all of a sudden they feel the room and they're like come up with an idea for a movie and they'll pitch it and they end up getting money for it like i don't know how much that happens anymore but i had a couple friends who've done that in the past i've just never been that guy so did you ever uh have to or choose to shadow like directors that are already working on a TV show? I had to shadow, um, on my first, I did a Canadian series, uh, a, a, like a legal series called The Associates, and I had to shadow George Bloomfeld, which is, I was in heaven because he's one of my favorite. He directed 80 episodes of SCTV. He's the one who created, he came in and he created the films for SCTV, like it was his idea to make the film parodies. And so I, I like I brought my SCTV history book and had him signing it and stuff. So and I just shadowed him and he would just go, what do you think we should do here? And I'd say and then he'd go, all right, let's do that. Wow. So, really? Yeah. So it was actually a pretty great experience. That is really awesome. actually. Especially what, what are some of your influences you said? Because I know I know you kind of mentioned like with the agency, like you had music videos and other things to show. What do you feel like sets apart your style a little bit? Um. I think I'm pretty concerned with how the frame looks and how the actual image looks. And I, I really am involved in um, setting looks. And then I was an actor, like I come from 200 years of Irish actors in my family. Okay. And I, I was an actor in college and stuff. I was part of a theater troupe. And I think those two things, like, I think speaking, I mean, Austin can tell you if I, a, I, I don't know if I spoke too much when you were in that room, I was nervous. Oh, my experience was you gave, I mean, you were, you gave limited notes. You really just like let the actor do what they were hired to do. Yeah. yeah. Which I like, which I like. Yeah. Well, you guys were great in those scenes. So um, the, uh, yeah, I think, I think that sets me apart being concerned with the look and as a photographer approaching it with a, a more cinematic style. I know that when I hire TV directors, a lot of the time they don't give notes to, um, the actors and they don't give notes to the cinematographer and I'm just kind of like, why, why are you here? Like, you're not telling them how to set the shots up, what you want, how you want to tell the story. We could kind of just do this without a director. So 
um, I, I try to look for people when I'm hiring um, as a producer, people who have an opinion, people like I'm hiring you for your style, for your opinion, so you can run the ship, so. And, good. well, I was just gonna say, for Deputy, you, I know you like executive produced other shows that you directed on, but for Deputy, you got hired by David Ayer's company, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did. So you had to fit his specific style, which was very cinematic. Yeah, we got to fit his style and then actually make it grow from there, which was because he did the, you know, he did the pilot in the first episode. And uh, then we just took it from there and went even a little, you know, even a little different. Alan Cadillo and I did and Sid, the DP. And David really, I would always talk to him about what we were doing. We're going to do this. This is a new shot we haven't done on the show. And I'd be like, um, but it's sort of based in his world. So I used him as an inspiration for it, which is nice to know. Like when you're approaching a scene and even as an actor or as a director, you're trying to find the heart of what that scene is. And then that answers all your questions. Um, and so we had like that as a part of the heart of every scene was sort of David's cinematic universe. And so we'd use that to answer all the style questions. Was he there on a, on a daily basis kind of making sure it was sort of like a, in line with what he imagined or? No, no, he turned it over to me as soon as, as soon as he was, Done. and he uh he came back a couple times in LA but David is uh David is uh a madman and a very talented madman and he uh he'll just like grab he'll go, give me a camera and he'll just grab it he'll want to like I operate sometimes when I when I want to be close to the actors and I'll ask the permission of the um uh the operators so I don't you know insult anyone but uh David's just like grab and go and he you know he goes right into the scene and starts doing it so I would assume if he would to visit set, that would happen on whatever director is working. He'd get like, you know, he just gets aggravated if he's not running it. So mm. I think he stayed away out of uh, out of uh, courtesy for the rest of us. But we we always called him and, and ran everything by him. One one of the things one of the the other thing I remember is I forget which series regular series regular of deputy I was talking to but they said oh as soon as we heard that Chris was directing the final two episodes of deputy we knew that it would it would go just fine because he doesn't do a lot of extra takes he comes super prepared and I know filming that last episode in Malibu we had a hard we had a hard out at like 9 p.m and we only got like one like that second safety take and then we moved right on yeah the owner of the house was literally standing there saying, I don't care, get out, I want you out, get out. While we were rolling and I was like, can you take him away from me so I at least concentrate a little bit? That was that was about the most cowboy I've shot since I did a you know a short film. Like I haven't, I, I haven't had an owner breathing down my neck and it's hard because at most, when an owner's doing that, usually you can have locations comes up with a thousand dollars and quiets them down, but it's a Malibu mansion so whatever your film money is, isn't going to appease them. And uh, my last shot uh, uh, was the clothesline shot where my yeah. character as the bad guy gets clotheslined. And we literally did one rehearsal and then there was an A cam and a B cam shooting at the same time. And we're like, okay, run it. Yeah. And we got and two takes. And the stunt guy wanted to try this giant flip, which I knew wasn't going to work. And he goes, just, just do it. And I'm like, we get one take, I'll cut around it, which we did. <laughs> But it was so insane. If you'd seen the first cut of it with the flip, it looked like probably she was the strongest person in the world. Wow. Yeah. So it's a full 360, but we cut it out. So. I see. Are you, you're still doing some some shorts and stuff too, or like some mini stuff here and there, or are you kind of like done with that world? I did. Um, you know, I, I try and do uh, music videos when I can. I did one last year for a British band called Fat White Family that was, uh, you know, it was fun to work with uh, junkies 
you know, it's always nice. People who have to sleep in the middle of a take. Uh, uh, but uh, they're, they're, they're sufficiently dangerous and punk rock to make it fun. Um, and uh, I liked how the video turned out. They, they kept worrying about how, like, we don't want it to look too good, man. It's going to look fucking too good. And so <laughs> I, I ran it between um, VHSs and then would like, crinkle up the tape until we got it sufficiently, you know, broken down. Wow. And then added effects to it later and stuff. So it, it didn't look good. They were, and I shot it on a digital Bolex myself with my 10 year old son as my only crew member. And how we wanted this one. Good. I was going to say, how do you make a choice to uh, like what intrigues you about a certain project that you would say, all right, let's do it? Well, I learned when I was doing it, when I was doing for music videos, when I was doing, uh, I've been directing like a lot of music videos. And then I, I was doing hip hop, these hip hop videos. And I'm like a kid from Saskatchewan in Canada. And so I'd go to these dance rehearsals and they'd be like, hey, how did that look? And I'd be like, I don't know, I guess it was fun. I let's do it or something. And uh, then I was talking to Kevin Drew from Broken Social Scene, who's a friend of mine. And I was like, I just, I don't like doing these videos. And he's like, have you ever said no? Have you ever, you know that you can actually say no to these things? And I'm like, wow. Like that should be an eye-opening moment. Not an eye-opening moment, but it was for me. And I, uh, I started saying no to ones that I didn't think I could add anything to. And uh, I then got Arcade Fire right after that. So um, from there, I just kept looking for the songs that I liked and something that I had an idea for and it seemed to, seemed to work out. So I still do the same thing. Like the band, I did one for the band Off a couple of years ago, uh, Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks band. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to do, you know, staging a fist fight between superheroes at Hollywood and Vine and having them like pee all over <laughs> each other in front of children was that was a lot of fun nice yeah would someone typically take a music video directing gig is it mostly because of the money or is it more of a stepping stone or i guess both um some people do it for money obviously some people do it for a living and i i, I always put my fee back into it and actually a bunch of music video directors when i was younger came to me and they were like stop donating your fee everyone expects that when we work with them now so um i i you know when i do them now generally people don't really pay for music videos anymore like I, I did a bunch for Vice and Vice pays like five grand, like for the budget. So the whole budget's five thousand dollars. So for the whole yeah. thing? So yeah. So it's it's like barely enough to buy a permit, you know, for most places. Great. So so it's people are all about DIY now and stuff. And I'm I'll do it only if there's like some sort of budget and like even my arcade fire video was only thirteen thousand dollars. And that went to like number nine on MTV. We shot it all ourselves, like no crew and so wow. So there's no more of that uh, million-dollar Kanye West uh, oh, somewhere. I'm sure there are. I just am not part of that world. If, I, if you if you want the gaudy product placement of Beats by Dre or whatever, then you can. Yeah, a million that's dollars. right. Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I saw on your IMDb you directed multiple episodes of Pretty Little Liars, <clears throat> and that seemed like the outlier sort of from the general theme of tv shows you direct no he did kyle xy it seemed like he did a bunch of like DC. yeah was, at one point when it was called abc family one of the executives came to me and she said it's like you're a part of the very fabric of this network and I, was like, <laughs> I had to go home and take a hard look at myself in the mirror after that like sort of meant as a compliment i guess but i i started questioning everything about myself and uh, I'm really happy to have done those. And Pretty Little Liars was great because Dana Gonzalez was the director of photography. He won the, I think, the Emmy last year, and he's won. Uh, he he uh, shoots all of the Fargo episodes. Oh, wow. Very, very talented DP. And so I got to work with him, and I got to see 
um, that creativity isn't dead in television. And that it sort of inspired me to keep, keep pushing the envelope on any show that I was on. And um, so every show you can, you can learn something from, I think. <laughs> but most, most of the shows I've been on, I've been able to push the envelope uh, a little bit. And then, I mean, I've done a lot of kids stuff. So I did like CW, I would put on par with that as well. And I was sort of uh, doing pilots and stuff for the CW and directing a lot. And I ran Vampire Diaries for a few years, so. I was, I was wondering, uh, working on like stuff like CW or whatever, do you feel like there are certain networks that are more heavily involved or are they all pretty hands-on in the process of like, you know, creating or sorry, controlling like your creativity and stuff? Uh, they don't. They generally don't control the look as much. Sometimes you'll get notes on things. Usually the note, the same note. Network execs seem to give the same notes over and over again. Like, that's too dark. They, they seem to have things that they say almost to check. Like, if you give notes for a living, you check a box. I said that note today, so I deserve a paycheck. Like, can you unpack that beat a little more? That's the note that I love the most. Uh, and... Uh, uh, but at that time when I was doing those shows, I wasn't as involved in the story stuff. I didn't, I, uh, I didn't learn till later that I should be on every call between the writers and the network um, and the studio because that way I can know what's coming and what the feedback is on everything. In Vampire Diaries, I rarely did that. But then once, once I left that show, I started being involved in everything. And I don't weigh in. Sometimes I'll just listen because um, they might say a little snippet, well, we hated this thing or we hated and we hate how this character's going. You know, and then it gives me like a little bit more fuel when I'm on set to go, okay, let's correct this a little more and bring it into the world that they want. And do you have power if needed to change some of the writing if you see fit? Uh, it depends on the show. I mean, I, I can't go and rewrite the script, but uh, a lot of the times like on, on Vampire Diaries, for instance, once the exec producer uh, of the show, the showrunner trusts you, sometimes they'll do things like Julie Pleck would be like, it, almost like, um, they would make jokes about how the uh, stage directions were just polite suggestions for me. Because um, I would just, I could change it all, but they knew that I'd do something that they liked. So um, I don't do that. When I was uh, just a director for hire on most shows, I, you tend not to do that because they get a little bit angry. They got a little angry with me like that on Orphan Black because I did my own thing on some of the stuff and they didn't like that. So they didn't have me back, but really, that turned, show, out, that, turned that, out really well. Yeah, yeah, uh, that show's so, um, I've only seen clips, but it seems like they would like different and It's just, it, it very much, it was uh, John and Graham's show. And they just, you know, John, John was busy on another episode, so I thought I could do that, but it was, you know, it's, it's I get what it, what happened, but it happened to me a bit on, uh, you know, it happens with me on, with other directors who do, do it their own way on shows that I'm running, and I'm just like, why? Now we have to go and recut this or reshoot this or, you know, so. Interesting. When you're a when you're a director for hire, can you kind of walk us through that process of like almost being like this this new kid in school? Um, what is it? What's like the initial steps of you coming into this, this show as like a well-oiled machine? Yeah, it's it's tough, especially on shows that have been around for a while, because um, you, you're coming in at a disadvantage. Everyone's like, "Oh, what does this genius have to say?" You know, that's sort of the attitude. Like, um, especially when you're younger, people are like, "Oh, great." Uh, First, like the joke is the only entry level position on the set is the director. So um, the uh, so it's a little bit of work. You have to be confident. The crew will test you. The actors will test you for sure. Like number one, two, and three on the call sheet will like 
middle of a take will disagree with everything you're saying in front of the whole crew just to see how you just to see how you react and um i've had some real you know tense moments that way where i you know you start to lose confidence and then people smell blood and they you know <laughs> it takes a while to learn exactly how to stay confident and you know my my idea has always been the best best idea wins so if somebody has a different idea and i like it i'll get credit for it anyway so we might as well try it no i'm just um, but the, uh, you know, the going in and being, just being personable, knowing that you're not always right. Being a human being, I think really helps. I've had some shows like Blood and Oil was one I did with Don Johnson. And I was lucky enough to be sitting next to Taylor Kitsch on the plane okay. uh, to go out to Salt Lake City to shoot this. And he and I hit it off talking about cameras because he collects Leicas. Who is Taylor Kitsch? Taylor Kitsch from Friday Night Lights and uh, Waco. He's been enough. So yeah. You know his face. You know his face. Yeah. So he uh, he called ahead to Chase Crawford, who was on the show, and said, "Oh, I sat next to this really cool guy. He's directing your next episode." So it was like, you know, phew, you have a if someone about, if you have someone vouching for you, then it takes some of the some of the heat off. Yeah. When you, I guess you kind of answered a sort of. But I guess if there is that sort of, I don't know, not altercation, but something where somebody's testing you, especially one of the name actors on the set. Let's say they're a big star. How do you, what's the best way to handle that situation? Like you don't want to, I, I guess. You yeah, want to I never, I'm, I mean, I'm of the mind that uh, everyone on set is replaceable except for the people who are on camera. So when you realize your place in the pecking order, you have to, you know, you have to bend a little bit. But the great thing is usually if somebody's going to challenge you like that and be really childish about it, you've been a parent, you know how to, you know, make your idea seem like their idea and, and make them happy. So and I'm never going to fight with someone on set. Life's too short. And it's for what? A TV show and one shot? You know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, if I, if it was a feature that I've been living with for, you know, 10 years and slaving to get it made and I wrote it and suddenly someone just wanted to change a big story point in the middle of a take, I'd probably be a little bit more upset. Is what, um, what is, do you have a project like maybe designated survivor that you did fight for? I just know cause you were EP on that. Is that an example of, of one of those? Um, Designated Survivor, uh, yeah, I started as just a director on that show and it was a complete and utter mess. Like they had booked me for two episodes and the day before I was supposed to travel, they called, or I called them and it was like, so when's my flight tomorrow? And they were like, oh, did nobody call you? We pushed your date a month and it's only one episode now. And so they still have to pay me for two, but I don't know how they just were bleeding money. So, um, I came onto that show and got along with Kiefer and I, you know, Kiefer is such a particular actor. And if you're in his world and you, you have the same style as him, then it's much easier going. But I watched directors who just had different ideas and he, Kiefer is one of those actors, very, very smart. So he will, if he loses faith in you, he'll just start this. He'll just be like, I'm over here. I'll come here. Have her come in that door. She'll walk here, put the camera over there, you know, cause he's directed a bunch too. So I've watched him just take over the set because he kind of has had to a lot in his career. And I've worked with a lot of actors like that, that if they lose faith in the director, like Don Johnson, there's a rumor. He didn't do it with me because we got along pretty well, but he, he only called TV directors. I think he only called them, called them Bob. He'd only call every TV director Bob. What are we shooting here, Bob? Male, so, so I never wanted to be a Bob. I always wanted to make sure that, you know, you listen to people and you had an opinion because they, at the end of the day, the actors want to be watched and they want someone who's actually invested 
and what they're doing is giving them actual feedback, even even the ones who pretend that they don't. So how'd you become EP? Uh, my first, oh, on Designated? Uh, yeah. The EP, uh, they liked my episode a lot. And then the next season, Fred Toy um, was leaving to go. Uh, he was the EP when I was there. And he's an amazing director, great guy. And he was leaving to go run Westworld. And so um, he suggested me, and then Kiefer suggested me separately. So that's sort of, Ooh. yeah, so I ended up getting it that way. And then on Vampire Diaries, I directed an episode that, um, that they liked a lot because it was the I was lucky because I, I got the episode where it was the first time they were going back to the 1920s on the on the series and so I got to change the whole look of the show and Kevin Williamson wrote me a beautiful letter about how it looked and everything and then they offered me the the EP job and from there I got the pilot for the originals and then the pilot for legacies that's really cool how do you how do you feel like you got on Kiefer's level if he's saying he's obviously used to directing himself almost um, he was away anything I think I think I had a, an advantage in that I'm from Saskatchewan where his his grandfather was a big deal in Canada he's a huge politician Tommy Douglas was the premier of my province and he invented sort of the Canadian version of our socialist medicine and everything so he's sort of a hero in Canada and Kiefer I think gravitates towards people from Saskatchewan because it's yeah. freezing cold and he thinks we're you know rugged and sensible so we we hit it off that way. And then um, I think he liked, he, he tested me, he liked my ideas. He liked that I treated the stage directions as, you know, polite suggestions. And I'd go, let's, you know, get this on its feet and move through the whole building as opposed to just being seated behind the desk, as it says right here. So he liked, he liked uh, making things new. He 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 respected that, I think. How did your uh, responsibilities change when you went to EP? Like as far as like a day-to-day -day version of it, how did it change? Yeah, it's, on a show like that, it's, uh, I try to make, um, as a directing producer, I try to make sure I'm a part of budgeting. Uh, I'm there for blockings, and then I'm working with the next director, uh, planning the next shoot. So it's really hectic. On Vampire Diaries, it, was, it ended, up, ended up being like 22-hour days a lot of the time. Oh, my God. Which that's, was that's the training. Debilitating. I, don't, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, but we don't shoot. I, 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 I might hesitate against doing a... Uh, uh, a night vampire show like that's all nights in the future but um, yeah I mean you're involved in everything and you don't have to be but you'll be playing catch up later so it's it's a great position because you're actually helping create something as opposed to just being hired to come in for a little while um, but it's also pretty taxing um, for the uh, for the uh, type of director who you know obviously eventually wants to do big things like that, but right now is maybe just made a bunch of like low budget short films that they produce themselves, but wants to get hired. Like, do you have any words of wisdom for that guy? Uh, if they've only done short films, um, if the short films look really good and uh, are interesting looking, they might be able to get. Cause there's so much shooting right now. This, I mean, not right now, obviously, but um, there was so much shooting. There's so many networks, streamers, everything. So. There's always kind of a way in. Um, it just depends on on what kind of director you are. Sometimes I would suggest, um, it, you know, going after a Hulu show or going after, even if you think that a kid's show isn't for you, sometimes there, there's a bunch of kid's shows that have great style to them. So um, there's that. I, I've worked with 
uh, uh, LA has some great shadowing programs too, like uh, Zetna Fuentes, who I think was nominated for Emmy last year. She shadowed me on Pretty Little Liars. And she's just, she was very talented. She's the only, like I've had a lot of shadows in my career and maybe two that I thought were gonna do anything. A lot of them are, are you know, their parents are really high up in the industry or something. And then they're like, you know, these meetings are kind of boring. I'm going to come for when you're shooting. I'm like, the meetings are where it happens. This is where we're, this is where the actual filmmaking, the, we're just, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on set. Um, so, you know, I have, I've had two that were good and they both have gone on to do things. So I would suggest shadowing a little bit if you actually are serious and you're going to show up and do the work. If you can get in a good shadow program, that, that can help as well. I didn't realize there were like programs for shadowing. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's, I mean, it depends. There's like uh, minority shadow programs, obviously, that are um, working a lot now. I don't know exactly all of them. We've had, Warner Brothers has one. Uh, I think Sony has one. I think Sony, it's like a yeah. fellowship or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like going further on that, if like maybe when you were earlier on in your career, like now you obviously have a ton of connections, but if you get off a show and you have nothing, how do you rain make? No, it's, I'm there. Every show I do, I always feel like, um, well, I've had a good run. I guess I'm going to go back to cooking. Um, <laughs> so um, you just kind of have to keep, I always feel like the meeting that I'm having isn't for the thing that I'm having it for. It's for two things from now, you know, like a year from now, they'll remember they met with me. Oh, he's that guy. We could put him here. So I think having having meetings and keeping keeping communication open with people. I had a really hard time creating uh, long term communication with different people in the industry because I'd have the meeting and then just be nervous to write them or say thank you or you know keep any sort of uh, communication going. But now I'm a little bit better at that. So I'd say if you have connections, check in with them. You know, uh, send them emails about things that you're interested in. Send them projects you're interested in because. So many people are looking for projects right now because there's so much, you know, airway to fill. And I know, uh, obviously, when uh, you're directing an episode, you often, many times, of course, the director will be the one that's looking at the guest actors coming on the episode. So, for example, like Austin, when he was uh, working on Deputy, is there certain things you look for in the audition, things that might stand out to you or anything like that? Um, I, if somebody nails the role exactly as I imagined it, I love that, but sometimes I, I really gravitate towards someone who completely turns the role on its ear, and I'm, I hadn't thought of it that way. It's a dangerous thing as an actor to do, um, I think, but um, when it's worked, it's really worked, and I've you know instantly been like, yeah, that's we should do it like that. We had the wrong idea; that person had the right idea. So sometimes you know, and you can work with uh, if you have a good casting director and you have a good communication with them. Sometimes they can give you a heads up about how to turn it a bit, but making sure you have a great relationship with a casting director or, or casting directors is important as well. Is there ever been an actor that you really liked, but maybe the network was like, no, nah, we're really feeling this other person or how does that? All the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. You know, I, I had, um, we had this role on the one that comes to mind is uh, we had this role for a, a mess cook at a military base in Afghanistan on designated survivor. And, uh, what's his name the actor's name from the office steve Prell. no yeah <laughs> the guy who played the kevin stanley oh, oh kevin, kevin, kevin malone yeah, yeah. brian yeah, so, brian something yeah and so he, he he read for that he was great it was not him and i love him so much 
and it was perfect, but the feedback you get every time from people of that level is no, it's Kevin from the office. Everyone will say there's Kevin from the office. Mm. So it's, oh, if you nail a role sometimes too, you're that for good is what it seems like in this, in this town until people so, sort of forget about it. Right. And every time I see that actor in a movie, even if he kills it, automatically think of the office because he was so good in the office. Yeah, exactly. What about John Krasinski? I mean, he's gone on to do a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but he, had get, he had to get ripped though. That's so. true. He changed his whole, his whole like, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Like for our, my episode, slash your episode of Deputy, like we had Alexis Wren yeah. um, hired on and I believe from talking to her, and she was great. And this is one of her first acting roles. And yeah. I believe she said that they were specifically looking for somebody with a large following to fill that role. Oh yeah, that's the world we live in now. We get like, I, I worked for Hulu quite a bit. I did uh, uh, Freakish, that show for Hulu. And um, another one called The Unsettling, two sort of horror series there. And, and through Awesomeness TV, one of their mandates at the time, I don't think it is anymore, was to work with influencers. So, and that's a double-edged sword because some influencers are amazing because they're on camera all the time. So they're natural and they're loose and they just take a little bit of direction to bring them you know, from here from YouTube, like, hey guys, down to like television, <laughs> natural acting. And, uh, but some of them, for some reason, it's like, I had one kid, I won't say his name, but he, he just froze as soon as we were, he was totally natural, hanging out, goofing around. And he's in tons of videos on YouTube, millions of people watch him. And then as soon as we roll, just sweat just starts pouring down his face. And it's like, he forgets how to speak English. It was, I had to almost phonetically read him his lines off camera. So it's, it, it depends. Alexis was great. She, you know, it took a while for her to sort of realize the tone of television. Cause I think you, even in acting classes and things like that, you don't realize how quiet you can be and how small you can be um, and how you don't have to do a lot with your face to, get, to convey an emotion. So it, it took her a while, but once she got it, she really, she really did a great job. And how common is that? Would you say like, Hey, one episode of a season you want that you know a guest star with a bunch of followers or once well, episode? For, for the awesomeness stuff they wanted like you know number four and five had to be had to be influencers but we got like I, we got Liza Koshy who was great and she's she can do anything you know she can um and then we had uh Megan Ranks Megan Rank yeah Megan Ranks and she was you know she gets thousands like hundreds of thousands of dollars for Instagram posts and stuff so she she brought a lot and they, they bring their fans. That's the great thing. A lot of people who are big on television have huge following. They can go to a movie and like two people follow them there. But for some reason, the YouTubers and stuff, whatever platform they move to, people tend to follow a little bit. So they ended up, you know, I don't know that the, the age of the influencer is going to last that much longer, but right now it seems that uh, every once in a while on network shows, they're in, interested in throwing an influencer in just to drag some different viewers over. And I, and I actually just uh, saw an article that Hollywood Reporter just dropped that uh, a, uh, a AI robot is now the elite of a new sci-fi film, $70 million. And yeah, they've got a CAA agent and stuff. Yeah. Thoughts on uh, <laughs> so AI robots? That's what a black mirror has to end soon because I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on using a robot for a movie or, or a TV show? Uh, I'm I've worked with a lot of actors that I think I'd love to replace with a robot. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. I mean, CG, CG stuff is, is difficult. And then you have, I love watching the behind the scenes of the, the people that they're actually um, 
you know, putting the CG face on. Like if you, I don't know if you've watched any of the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff when he's sitting there playing the raccoon in the green suit. It's yeah. just hilarious. Yeah. Um, bringing it to today in Hollywood, have productions from your side of the pond started? Have you started seeing more offers or potential projects? You know, I talked to my agent a couple days ago, and he said he hasn't had an inquiry, uh, inquiry for a director in two months. So I don't, I think they're spending a lot of time thinking about how they'll reopen. And then some states are reopening. All the states where they're reopening, though, seem to be having spikes in coronavirus because people keep going and having, you know, 2,000 per person lake boat parties. Um, so I, I don't know how fast it's going to reopen. If we can get it under control, I mean, the EU is canceling is not allowing Americans to travel there anymore because America doesn't have it under control. Mm. So that's, Damn. I think that's a first. <laughs> yeah. We're being looped in with like uh, parts of China that don't have it under control. So. Um, I don't know how fast it's going to open. I hope, I hope it opens. There's a lot of, like, we're doing a lot of Zoom pitching and things like that. And people seem to be still buying and wanting to, uh, to do that. So that's what we're spending our time. A lot of people are spending their time doing. Like stuff that you've written? Uh, yeah, stuff I've co-written. I've got like seven projects I'm trying to, you know, I've kind of used this time because when you're EP, it's hard to, hard to start going and being creative on, on your own stuff. It just, my brain can't, I don't have those compartments uh, as easily laid out. So I, now that I've had time off, I've been able to take all the things that I was brewing and sort of bring them up to the front. And uh, it's, it's been pretty productive. Are you mainly interested in TV? Like, are those the stuff you're writing? Um, yeah, I've got a couple features that we're um, working on, uh, a couple horror and thriller things, and then a lot of, a lot of TV sort of the path of least resistance, which is someone advised me of that early in my career and it, it seems to have worked. What's the uh, a strategy for pitching? <laughs> Don't let me lead it, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, usually the, the writer will lead it and I'll give sort of an intro of how it's going to look, how the idea came to me, um, how I developed it, how I brought the writer on, and then the writer will take over and give the overall sale and then the answer questions at the end usually any no slideshow component or anything um, in person we do but on, on zoom i have it usually we'll send uh like a document to get them interested and it has some uh usually has some visual elements to it interesting yeah when we when i was working with i had a series with um awesomeness that we went out with a horror series and we did they did a big visual presentation that i had nothing to do with that was very spooky and it was well done but i haven't I don't have time for that. So. <laughs> what are your uh, What are some of your favorite movies? That kind of Ooh. influence. You said you worked in a video store, so it wasn't blockbuster. Oh, yeah, um, I, I mean, I I love eighties horror stuff, and then I love you know uh, the Big Sleep. I love uh, I watch everything. Uh, I've been what have I been watching lately? Uh, I showed my son The Cabin in the Woods, which he'd never seen. I'm I'm, I'm lucky because my our eldest son is a horror fanatic so we get to watch a lot of stuff together He's we just fan. we just had the um the blonde uh woman anna hutchison on the podcast she was our last guest oh nice Amazing. And, we and we worked with her on a film austin and i a feature yeah which one it was originally called splitting image but once lifetime bought it uh they changed it to married to a murderer oh nice yeah. Wait, wait, give right after a very first lady christmas I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly 
Yeah, Johnny, way with Lifetime gave away like the ending by changing the name yeah, of the Mary Tumor. Yeah, I did a Lifetime movie. It was supposed to be a series, and then they turned it into a movie, and it has no ending because it was supposed to be a series. So, <laughs> absolutely, they thought like just cutting to the pull away would answer all the questions. And like, anyway, what was it called? It was called Sea Change. It was a, a New York Times bestseller. It was when the woman who ran MTV took over. They started, they wanted to try and do some something CW-like. And so it was like Vampire Diaries, but uh, sort of about sea monsters. And so it was it was like Creature from the Black Lagoon, but Vampire Diaries-like. So it was, it was a lot of fun. They let me shoot it the way I wanted. I'm proud of how it looks, but it was, uh, they at the end, it tested, it tested really well. I think it one of the best tested things they'd done at the in vegas or whatever and then um but every single person guessed that it was on netflix so they thought it was too off brand uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean everybody thought it was too good yeah maybe <laughs> and, then, and then they uh it was kind of a blessing in some ways because we had to shoot in nova scotia in canada and um it's a, it takes place in the summer. The whole thing is about, like a, a rich and poor in this island community. Um, and there's maybe three months where it's warm there. So I don't know how to shoot like 16 episodes or whatever in three months. It would have been, would have been hell. So I see you're working on a new project called Jimbo, I believe. Jimbo, that no, that, that's old. I haven't, I don't know why that's on there. It just barely popped up or something. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, I've been, uh, I'm working on, uh, a thing called Goat about a YouTuber who goes, who gets kicked off YouTube. He's a horror influencer and he goes on a killing spree on the kids who got him kicked off. Um, and then we're working on uh, a series, kind of a gritty modern Lone Ranger, uh, where it's a, about a Texas Ranger who goes after a serial killer. Hmm. Um, so working on things like that. Is that, you said that, is that a series, the, the gritty Lone Ranger? Yeah, it's a series. Okay. Yeah. And do you have networks in mind that you want to see these on? Or are you open to whoever picks it up? Um, I don't think, I, after working with Fox recently, um, I, I, I have a really good idea of what, what, what they want. I don't think any of the stuff uh, works for Fox, obviously, but I love working with them. But it was, you know, network stuff is a different, totally different um, genre in some ways. And uh, I think these are more, the stuff I'm working with is more streaming, you know. Netflix, HBO, if we can, obviously. Cool. I know, it, I know it kind of worked out for you with the, the feature Clutch, but do you still encourage people that want to get more exposure to do the film festival circuit? Or oh, yeah. For sure. for sure. Especially, like, you look at Fantasia, even the online festivals. Like, look at the guy who made um, Lights Out, made the little short. He got, you know, he got $10 million to make a movie off a 30-second short. So because of streaming and everything now, you don't have to do the film festivals. You don't have to, but I mean that's one way to do it. But um, especially genre stuff, if you have something that really is a new idea and you do it in a visual way that no one's seen, which is difficult, um, you can you can jump right from that into a movie. That's what I what I witnessed. Nice. And in our final five ten minutes, I have a few more questions, but we get this one from our audience a lot. Like if you're an actor on set at like a co-star or a guest star level, so not the series regulars that you would deal with and have real, have a lot of rapport with, but if you're just coming in for a day or a few days, is it, do you welcome like actors that six months down the line, 12 months down the line, keep, keep in touch with you and just like update, like, Hey, just worked on this project. Absolutely. There's a, 
I do. I, I do like that. And it's, I, I've kept in contact with a lot of, some of my good friends are actually, were, uh, you know, uh, guests on, on shows that I worked on. So they keep in touch. And so, uh, even on Deputy, the guy who played the uh, LAPD chief, I keep, he keeps in contact with me in a great way, checks in with me. He asks me for references sometimes because he knows I really like his performance. And so I'll send a note if I know the person. And oh, say, nice. That's great. He does well on set. So um, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing to keep in contact. You're not, you're not bothering people. If someone actually likes your performance and, and uh, is happy with what you did and you can tell, then, you know, they'll, they'll happily help you get other stuff for the most part, I think. Yeah. I guess the worst thing is that they just don't respond and then you can take a hint. Yeah. <laughs> then you know that that person's a dick. And you <laughs> so what's the best way to open it? Hey man, do you, you want to hang out or what do we do? <laughs> yeah, right. not, not to hang out, but if, if, if there's something you really want, then it's uh, like, you know, I've had actors who are like, I'm up to this role with this producer who I know you've worked with. Um, if, would you mind giving them a heads up that I, if you like my performance, that you like my performance or whatever, and I'll just send a quick note. Or I'll do that with directors of photography, grips, you know, even PAs, if, if, if I've liked how they've worked and I've gotten along with them. Um, I wanted to ask you real fast about uh, containment. I, I did a, a small co-star on that show years ago. Oh, cool. Um, wondering, uh, I was kind, of, was kind of surprised that the show ended up just being that one season, but yeah. did you enjoy working on that show? What was your experience like on that? I loved it. It was great. It was, you know, Ju Julie Pleck and I worked together since Kyle XY and she's one of my favorites. She's and you directed it, Chris? Yeah, uh, I think I directed two episodes of that. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, I thought it was going to get more seasons as well. I think it would now, obviously, because it's it's kind of about what we're going through. Very uh, time, yeah, yeah. But I think the CW just has a hard time selling apocalypse stuff. <clears throat> like I think that there wasn't enough of a try. It wasn't sexy enough because it was pretty, you know, pretty <laughs> pretty down. I did some of the most revolting things like someone just throwing up blood into the air and she's dying of this virus and it was pretty revolting so i could see you know people tuning in teenagers tuning into the cw and just being like what is <laughs> we're so, like where are, the, where are the vampires yeah exactly <laughs> great. all right team final question final chris where can our audience find you um what uh i guess instagram i'm on instagram just my name, Chris Brismer. Um, and I have a website, uh, chrisbrismerdirector.com. So I'm on there if you want to get in contact. But, okay. yeah. Nice. Awesome. Um, dude, thank you for coming on. I, I learned a lot. Um, it was awesome. Oh, yeah. thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. Okay, thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon.